Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again. And subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome along to the latest episode of The Curious Capitalist. Now, this is exciting. David Wright and Glenn McDermott join us from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut Chapter Board. And David's going to be firing the questions today, not only to Glenn, but he's going to be speaking with Steve Britton. Great last name, by the way, bearing in mind my accent. Now, Steve is the president and CEO of Laguna College of Art and Design, as well as being a key advisor on academic, government and corporate boards. Now, Steve continues to invest in innovation startups. And I know that both David and Glenn are excited to learn more about what he's been up to. So welcome along to the podcast. Let's find out more about the synergy between art and design, business and social change. Steve, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you, Claire. Claire, thanks so much for having time for us. And as a board member, this is David Wrights from Conscious Capitalism. I was able to put together this podcast, which includes some leaders in design thinking and really put this as a program for the business community. And I'm delighted to have both Steve and Glenn as the guests. First question I have for Steve is, tell me about yourself and how did you get to this point in your career? Thanks for having me on, David. Well, it's been a long journey. (laughs) I was born in South Africa, came to the United States essentially to study masters in architecture, having come from University of Cape Town. It was a tumultuous period because it was a state of emergency in South Africa. We had a choice as to whether to go and join the army during apartheid or leave the country. And I, I chose and had the, uh, the option to leave and continue my studies. Design has come to, to me naturally in some ways and, and through DNA. My dad was an architect and installed in me the essence of design thinking. It has been a part of my life since being a young boy. Coming to the States, once I graduated and in my architecture program, I was able to enter into a number of different and interesting positions, mainly because it was a recession when I graduated. So even though I had done very well in my studies, it turned out to be quite a challenge to get a job in the early 90s during the recession. So I ended up teaching and got a teaching position in architecture at, at Rhode Island School of Design was way too young to be teaching, but uh, that was the um, <laughs> that was the opportunity that that arose. But it was really a wonderful experience, almost being with peers as my students, but bringing some of my training and experience, and really the political challenges that I'd experienced in in South Africa, bringing that to the United States, and that was the beginning of my career. Is looking at social issues. And as a designer, how you can influence and affect change as an architect and as a designer with a positive social results. And so my studios at RISD and following on at, at Columbia and Harvard were all related to issues around affordability, urbanization, the challenges that we were facing in South Africa, seeing parallels in the United States. 
especially where you have inner cities and really being on the outs in an inner city, what that meant. Uh, so from an urban design standpoint and from an architectural standpoint, looking at affordability, looking at affordable housing, looking at uh, social issues impacting homelessness. Here we were at a top design college university and I wanted to take that design and that design experience and be able to have students understand that you can influence a positive change through your design. And that was really how it all started. I'm very curious curious on, you've been straddling the world of design and business, and I wonder how architecture and design has informed business, or you've seen business informing architecture and design. Oh, that's a great question, David. I mean, actually, when when I think about it, and this has been a, an area of concern for me for a very long time, is how architects are actually trained in the business world. We, having even gone to Harvard University, you would think that there would be some training for how to begin to function and operate from a business standpoint in the architecture industry and into con construction and all the real estate that surrounds us. We had to learn it through experience, and I was very fortunate to be able to begin my career in addition to the teaching at RISD, my professors invited me to join a company. It was called Integrated Design Environments. And this was very early on in the 90s as well. And we had applied together as a company with uh, DARPA, that in those days was the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, for a grant to design the surgical room of the future. It was an absolutely fascinating team because my partners were two professors from MIT, one in robotics, one in mechanical engineering, and my two professors from Harvard, one structural engineer and an architect and myself. The idea was to use virtual reality to design the surgical room of the future. And we had Northrop Grumman as the military partner and then Mass General Hospital. This was my MBA because I was then thrown into this wonderful situation uh, to collaborate between different industries and solve problems in an integrated and collaborative fashion. With the funding that we had, we raised, we had a $500,000 grant, uh, which was a lot in those days. Our studio was in MIT's dome, it was this black box. But to your question, the business experience emerged from that because we had to, at a very young age, I had to really think about how we budgeted and planned and created this various solutions to a very difficult problem, but in an efficient and business-like way. And, you know, that was the, the foundation. And then that led to uh, thinking in architecture about how everything we do has financial impact, has social impact, and structuring the business in a way that we could be competitive in a very, very competitive environment in architecture. You know, it's a, it's a commodity as a business. We were seen as a commodity, I'm exaggerating, but in many ways, there's so many architects all clamoring to do these projects with clients. And if you didn't have a business head, if you didn't understand the principles of how to be competitive in a business-like way, many architects end up struggling for that reason. So I was able to, I had a leg up in this way from starting this company and learning about the basics of business. Yeah. What a foundational experience really to, to do that early in, in your career. Glenn, you're executive director for Conscious Capitalism and also the owner operator of Red Rock Branding how you can derive equity, how you can derive sustainability. It's a question I've always wanted to ask you, and I'm, I'm curious on that for you, how marketing can do those those things. Yeah, thanks, David. It's great to be in the room with you guys today and talking about things that are so dear to me. And, and design is, soon after I finished my master's of design in Sydney, 
I was working with big retailers and doing mainly disciplines around visual merchandising and store design. And I was really impressed or excited about these tools I had in my toolkit that modify human behavior in very interesting ways within a commercial sort of consumer environment. So that's what really spiked my interest in what powers that designers have in their ability to modify human behavior positively or negatively. And I continued my career in retail for the next 10 years until I came to the US and really then decided that I should take that particular skill set and use it towards the issues that I feel personally much more passionate about, like racial equity, social equity, and, and those kind of social issues that are really troubling our democracy at the moment. So in the last 10 years with Red Rock, that's really what we've been focusing on. We tagline is building brands for healthy people and planet. And we've really focused on public health initiatives mainly mental health campaigns with various universities around the US. And it's been a much more fulfilling uh, role than seeing how design can impact in a positive way and really make a difference with um, social and health outcomes nationally. So that's really my background and foreground. And modifying behavior, I like what you said there. What's an example of how marketing could modify behavior for more equity sustainability? I finished a uh, campaign that was funded by the NIH, and it was done through Yale, and the control group was at Harvard. It was a four-year campaign, and one of the outcomes was to reduce the treatment of this mental health condition. So over the four years, we tracked and monitored working with all the research group at Yale and were able to reduce the uh, duration of untreated psychosis from 300 days to 149 days. And that's been published as a peer-reviewed article. That's probably the best example I can offer you because it was executed within the research community of Yale and Harvard, and it was a public communication campaign that we completely built and we were able to monitor the progress over five years. And, and since then, some of those learnings have been applied to other states and we're working on rolling that out as well. So that's one example of how it can, can all work for better out. Excellent, I applaud you on that. It's a, it's incredible impact and mental health has so much stigma and that, you know, the impact is incredible. Steve, in conscious capitalism, we look at organizations and building organizations with a higher purpose, which gets at not why we're here beyond generating profit. Uh, we call this our North Star of the organization. If we relate that to design principles for architecture, you know, how would you relate that to design thinking and how would you advise businesses to integrate design thinking into their purpose and into their organizations? Oh, great question, David. It's very difficult for architects to work in isolation. So the training that we had was always at multiple levels, having to think about the environment, having to think about various moving parts, recognizing that you're always having to work well as a team. You have contractors, you have your engineers. So putting a building together requires tremendous amount of organization, management and skill, ultimately to build a building or a, a larger urban project in a way that's successful and can be occupied by humans and uh, they can enjoy the experience of that good design. It's almost part of our training, it's a mindset. 
in many ways, the movement towards human-centered design, I think, has been very, very influential and positive in, in, in education. I've seen it in, in our academic institutions. I've seen it in architecture, but not just in architecture, in all the design areas, industrial design. I see it in college uh, as well with um, graphic design. There's a multidisciplinary approach to problem-solving at a human human level. So I think that the, the design principles are, are, in a sense, built in through this collaborative process and recognizing that um, as designers, you cannot work in isolation, you don't work in a vacuum, and you need skills that are outside of design, the design areas and design fields. So more often than not, we, in architecture, you have engineering and architecture working together. There's a great deal of understanding that architects don't have for how the calculations for, for structural steel goes together and makes, makes the building all work together. We're reliant on engineers to do that. In the same way, all designers, I think, are now being appreciated as you see in a number of companies for their different ways of, of bringing skills and understanding and a perspective of how projects can be resolved, how s solutions can be brought to difficult problems that are also from a non-engineering or a non-scientific point of view. So it's that collaboration, I think, that helps to build organizations at a higher level. And I think any, any organization today, if they're not thinking in an interdisciplinary way and they're not thinking in a collaborative way, bringing the skill sets that are you know, complementary and work well together to help problem solve with an understanding of the social impact of what it is you're doing. Never forgetting that as a designer, everything you touch, everything you do has an impact. From the smallest microscopic scale of developing a, a nano tool or device to designing for the larger scale urban environment, you're having a very powerful impact in the decisions that you're making, whether it's about a material you choose, or it's about the spaces that you make and the, and the environment landscape and materials that you bring to that. All of those aspects come into a more holistic and human-centered design approach to make for a better organization. Very interesting. And, and as you think about this human-centered design, and then you have this interaction with technology these days, like we're on a podcast now where some of us are in Connecticut, you're in uh, California, and you know there's great interaction. You have buildings and architecture at, at the district here in New Haven. There's spaces to meet and co-collaborate, and there is you know the Guggenheim where you experience art. But I wonder what, especially after the last several years of a, a lot of kind of Zoom and and spending time apart, is that. Uh, how does that affect or is it changing at all? Are you wrestling with anything in the design world where you're looking at these type of technologies? Yes, uh, technology has absolutely been a game changer in the architectural world, in the design world. And in the last two decades, I've seen a significant improvement and development in the way that technology enables design, intelligent design process, starting from, you know, I mentioned the integrated design environments. The very first virtual reality tool we were using was a silicon graphics machine with a headset that was the size of a diver's helmet and weighed a ton and had this, you know, this broken up image that, uh, you know, we didn't have strong enough internet when we were designing the remote search 
surgical tool. There just wasn't the bandwidth to be able to uh, perform the surgery. Today, there's the Da Vinci uh, surgical tool that is used in major hospitals around the country, and it's now the predominant technology for performing surgery. It, it, it improves the whole interface for surgeons and for patients that have been quite revolutionary. So the technology has emerged in a way that has been, you know, remarkable and revolutionary. So that virtual experience now is far more accessible and realistic and functional. So there's great value to the technology there. There's also the, you know, the 3D printing and, and digital technologies that we are now uh, able to test out our ideas and prototype very complex designs without having to build them first. So we can test them in 3D, but we can also experience them in a virtual environment in a, in a very realistic way. So there's a great deal of benefit to that as well. Technology has been absolutely wonderful for us. However, that's not the only way for us to be thinking about good design. I think as we operate in the metaverse, as we, we call it now, and looking at internet 3.0, so you know this next phase of, of the experiential and virtual worlds that everybody's now entering, especially our students, they operate in a very different environment that was tactile and experiential in the way that my generation growing up knew. It has pluses and minuses. I think that there's a great disconnect as well in that virtual environment in the personal and social experiences. And there's, you know, this is a longer conversation than maybe our podcast can allow, but there's a social impact to this virtual and experiential design that is pulled that personal interaction away and being able to truly understand design in a physical sense. And in fact, in our college, and we're making sure that our students are getting foundational training in drawing and drawing perspective and drawing figurative anatomy, learning some of the very basics with drawing with a pencil so that when they go into the digital world, there is that this connection with the tactile and with the physical and being able to translate things like perspective that we think are overly simplistic, but actually are very complex in a drawing and not just taking it for granted when you move into the digital environment where it's all constructed for you. So there are you know, pluses and minuses to the technology, but I'm hoping that we take the same principles about the social impact of our designs and being aware of our environment and, and sustainability as we transition into the metaverse and into the virtual world as we are designing. Very interesting. And to, to see the full circle from education to new products to informing how students are educated is very interesting. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. Glenn, for your company, do you think your customers are aware of the, the culture that exists and the purpose that you have in your company? Yeah, we try and articulate that. We say, you know, leading with purpose, but obviously there are many people that do that. We are not unique in that, but we try and develop a relationship with the client where we help them articulate their sense of purpose and the kind of problems that they solve, which is pretty much a design thinking process. As Steve was describing earlier, 
it's a journey of empathy, understanding where their pain points are and understanding what the customer's specific needs are. Some of us are guilty in the design industry by thinking that we have all of the solutions in our own mind um, without really actively seeking and understanding the customer's needs. And I think the growth of design thinking is a product of that. And I think yeah. um, from a marketing perspective, a lot of marketing businesses go into execution of tactics without fully understanding that what those needs are. And, and I think that's the reason why a lot of people say, well, marketing's 50% of marketing spend is, is a waste of money and they don't know which 50 is because they haven't invested time in that process to begin with. How do you see designers' role in driving social change? Well, I was at the uh, theatre the other night and it was half time and there was the men's rooms and the women's rooms, right? And there was no line at the men's and there was a huge line out of the women's rooms. And I'm thinking, why is this? I mean, obviously there's a male design role playing in here because they're not mindful of those kind of simple needs. And it, and it, just, it just kind of irked me that there are still many examples of that in our society where there's not really much thought given to specific community needs. And that that's just why I'm, Steve, I'm sure you have many more in terms of an architecture perspective. And also I'm curious because I think designers have a somewhat gifted with a little bit of insight as to, as a, an industry, they can help solve these problems. So there's a bit more responsibility on, on how they should solve these problems. So I don't know, Steve, what do you, what do you say to that? Yes, I think this is, a, this is such a great topic. And as designers, we're wired to help transition and solve problems in ways that you know require observation and sensitivity to our environments. And I think that's a big part of it, is that we're aware of things that, like you, what you mentioned, Glenn, where you have a, a male-dominated or oriented perspective of things, or you think about how a Western worldview has in many ways shaped the world in which we live and dictated so many decisions that have ramifications made by uh, not just designers, but politicians and other disciplines. But as designers, we're socially wired to try to constantly improve those environments. So in architectural, in the architectural world, especially now when we are dealing with issues of climate change, architects and, and engineers are working together in ways that are really beginning to address how we can at least begin to shape and improve our environment. And just some examples of sea level rise in major cities is a, a huge problem and it's gonna increase as we are already seeing the challenges of sea level rise in cities. Some cities will be actually flooded, you know, uh, areas of, of Florida and Boston have got maps that show sea level rise if in a perfect storm enveloping an entire sections of cities. So architects are working together in very creative and innovative ways looking at resilience. Everything from how you can improve landscaping to absorb how buildings are redesigned at the ground level so that if they are flooded, the mechanical systems aren't at that level or there are ways to evacuate and, and protect the building's uh, essential structures and infrastructure, city infrastructure and how that works together. There's major innovation in this new smart city movement, an area that I happened to be involved in about 10 years ago uh, with a very interesting group called Living 
observing planet and they were mostly technology experts working with designers to figure out how you can really manage a city from a cohesive technical standpoint in a sustainable way. By that, I mean using sensors to be able to monitor carbon dioxide and, and, and the air quality and movement and traffic flow and parking and structure and typical city challenges that you find in a way that technology can help and improve those designs. So there's you know a number of ways in which designers thinking from a social standpoint are beginning to influence and help problem solve. But again, it has to be done in a collaborative way. It can never be done just in isolation. This will require teams of experts with different skill sets coming together to problem solve. But with a, but nowadays, I think there is definitely more of a sensibility about your social impact. What is the kind of carbon footprint that you leave in your designs? How are your buildings or, or spaces or products performing in a way that is going to lessen the carbon footprint or lessen the pollution and impact on the planet. Those are all becoming very much a part of our fabric and our way of being as designers. I had one question for Steve, though. It's, it's sort of leaning into racial equity. And I know that as an industry, design yes. and marketing has been accused of as being very white male orientated. Mm -hmm. And we're working on some campaigns at the moment where we're very intentionally leaning into the black and brown community to number mm -hmm. one, make them aware that marketing and communication is can be a really good fun career. And number two, trying to increase the racial balance of the Red Rock team. So that's how we're doing it, Steve. But I know that you're working in a big college environment. How do you see the, the sort of racial equity lens in the design? Because we talked about technology earlier and sometimes the technology becomes a barrier to entry. So what are your thoughts on racial equity and the design uh, opportunities? Glenn, that's really at the forefront of our thinking for how we can create a, an environment for our students and faculty, our whole community, to feel inclusive and be part of a forward thinking and less racially divided environment and workplace and a place for creative thinking. And we have this term that I think is it's so interesting in the United States. We always come up with buzzwords, but we call it DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. And all the colleges now have uh, been forced to make commitments to really diversify the campus and to be aware of racial profiling and to incorporate into the curricula that there is, you know, an awareness of some of the challenges that we face with uh, social issues and, and especially with um, current political situation, as you're talking about, Glenn, I think it's a very difficult time for us because it's impacting freedom of speech. It impacts how faculty feel compelled to be much more cautious about sharing opinions that might offend people. We talk about even to the level and we have we have special training now for faculty and staff on how we can avoid racial profiling or any negative social sentiments that are expressed in the campus. So what we try to do is incorporate that into our curriculum. I think one of the, the areas that interests me is instead of using buzzwords, instead of creating rules, I would like to try to incorporate in our coursework in the everyday how students are integrated, first of all. So diversifying as much, providing as much options and financial support that we can for the disenfranchised portion of the community. We're trying to 
provide grants and scholarships for the BIPOC communities and for the minority community here in, in, in California. I'm pleased to say that our college population, our student population is quite diverse in Latinos and, and African-American and then international students. But in our curriculum, we're trying to incorporate ways of designing and being artists and being creative that facilitates thinking about equity and inclusion in the way that we're discussing all uh, design areas. And whether it's the history of art, looking at past prejudices and how that can be rectified. We talked about a, a Western worldview. How do we, how do we in the 21st century in a very racially divided country provide a perspective on history that isn't personalized, but is, is accurate and truthful. And so that's a big factor in how we are starting to incorporate that into our coursework, into our programs and into our thinking. And I think it's a very important way to, rather than forcing rules on people to through experiences, through working together, through by example, having diversity in your classroom, diversity in your faculty, and being open to this kind of critical thought process and allowing for discourse without retribution is something that is very, very much on the forefront of what we're doing. But I have to tell you, it's a very difficult period for us right now. How do you set that up, being able to have honest, open dialogue with a diverse views and diversity within probably faculty and student populations so that it's honest, but a safe place to have? How does that happen? I think one of the areas, it's hard to really answer that because um, because there's such a hypersensitivity right now, David, and as I said, almost a fear of being called out, of being um, challenged and checked by either faculty or students. Uh, you know, the just the manner in which we are addressing students today with preferred pronouns, for example, has become very much in the forefront of how we're showing respect for either racial or ethnic or differences in sexual preferences, whatever the case may be. How you're addressing someone is something that is now being incorporated. And so you're, I see a notice going out to our students saying how you want to be referred to and how you want to be addressed and what your preferred pronoun is now being offered as an option to students so that they can be respected for however they identify themselves. Mm -hmm. Another way that I think that it's starting to help is we, you know, through our, our faculty and through some of the administration, we're reporting the distinctive groups that identify themselves in certain ways. The Latin group, the, the African-American uh, committees, we have a LGBTQ plus committee, we have a woman in animation, we have at least 15 different I call them committees, but they're groups of students who identify and want to be recognized for their preferences and for their interests and be respected for that. And they are then given opportunities to express themselves through their art, through their designs and through their communications, through events that we host, special exhibitions for women artists or women in animation in that particular committee that I mentioned are being set up so that it creates awareness for people who are perhaps coming from a more prejudiced point of view or just don't understand enough about what it means to be trans or gay and what that lifestyle is all about. And through that, you're educating people so that there isn't this immediate fear or based on ignorance primarily of, of mm -hmm. difference. So we, we discourage we discourage uh, separation of different identities in a way that 
allows for people to learn and at least they can be educated and be less fearful about what they perceive to be differences. And so in that way, I think that's the best way to educate, frankly, our students and faculty, you know, in, in that the fear factor is taken out and the shared experiences become a part of an ordinary way of life. I think that uh, politics and social media have created this division and have caused the inability to have discourse and to, to be free to, to express yourself for fear of some reprisal uh, being called out because you, you have an opinion. Well, we're trying to create this environment, as you said, Glenn, you know, how do we do this within a campus to create an environment where there isn't the fear of expressing yourself? The first thing I say to the students in orientation, I want you to be free to say anything you want to say and be express express yourself provided it's respectful and it's done you know with a with on the basis of some sort of knowledge and not just out of anger it's got to be done with respect but this this should be an environment where you can you should speak your mind and you should be able to have your differences heard and not have it lead automatically to some sort of conflict this is something that we're struggling with great deal of of challenges for our students because they live in the social media world and as soon as they're face to face, they find it much more difficult to resolve their differences. I could go on, but I think there's, a, you know, this is, these are some of the ways in which to answer your question, we're ameliorating. I don't think we're solving the problem, but of creating a much more diverse and hopefully uh, integrated environment for our students and faculty and staff. So we talked about quite a bit of different topics and, and challenges, sustainability, technology, diversity, inclusion, which represent both challenges and opportunities. And I, I wonder in your respective fields, if one of those is the, the biggest challenge that you see that you're facing and what's the path forward on it or another topic that we haven't touched on. The two fundamental challenges that I think we face today are uh, global climate change and the inability, it seems, for our planet and our, uh, the leadership in all countries around the world to recognize the existential threat that we all face and how to really be urgently doing something about it. And so for me in, in our education institution, educational institution, and the whole working environment that we're creating, one of the areas that uh, of focus is on sustainability and an awareness of this existential threat incorporated into the designer's mindset and into the artist's mindset. So everything that they do hinges on with them recognizing that they each person can have a positive effect or a negative effect and can help address this serious, serious challenge that we face. And I think coinciding with that is this uh, the political upheaval that we're facing, where I think that in many ways, I believe social media has created Armageddon situation for us, where it's really antisocial. I think it's created such, as I said, division and rancor in our social spheres that it's become almost untenable and it's very difficult to build communities and have stability. So how we do that through, as I mentioned, through some of the courses and really having justice, quality and inclusion be part of our fabric in our everyday is essential to addressing the social and political challenges that we face. So I think sustainability and social issues, and that, that's had a huge effect on our, our student population. We are seeing emotional challenges 
students uh, suffering from depression and anxiety increasing significantly now and having to address that and how we solve that is going to be a huge, huge challenge. I, I see that, you know, almost 70% of our students suffer from anxiety and I'm sure it's from recognizing the, the challenging world that, that they, they see ahead of them. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, well, Steve, I know you just um, you left Sydney and it was underwater. Well, the last time I left Sydney, it was up in flames. So I think there's there's two uh, data points for our world is being turned upside down. And I, I recognise too that you know the social equity, racial equity, and wealth distribution are, are probably the biggest issues as well as sustainability. And, and the work that we do with conscious capitalism is trying coach and develop and, and collaborate with organisations that are lean into those sort of big issues about the way business can elevate humanity. So I'm really happy to continue our work in that way. And recently we've just partnered up with uh, another organization called ProSocial who have the kind of scientific underpinnings of these ideas. So we're talking about how we can collaborate to just form a little more of a uh, substantial science behind the idea of, of elevating business for humanity. So that's great. And the, and the other work we're doing with businesses around public health initiatives with Red Rock is, is also gives me some comfort in this uh, backdrop of distress when we can look at not only public health initiatives, but the new green technologies that are coming out of this innovation space and that will help us solve some of these climate challenges that we have going ahead. So I get at least some satisfaction working with a tremendous team, not only Conscious Capitalism, but at Red Rock with such a small but mighty creative group. And that's what I focus on um, is control the controllables, right? Do what you can to what you have in your sphere of influence to do it. And I think that as designers, we have a lot of influence in that because we touch so many more people than other trades or skills do in how we communicate the communication that we produce and how architecture can influence how you behave and, and those kind of things. And so I'm really enjoyed having this conversation with you guys today to talk about the touch points and the control points that we have in our professions and it's, it's been great to explore those ideas with, with you, Steve and David. Thanks for, thanks for driving. You've been a great collaborator and, and, uh, and host today. If I may, for two more minutes, just to pick up on what you said, Glenn, because I think it's really important that we do provide examples of where designers do have an impact. And to your earlier question, David, you know, about the importance of technology, I wanted to just uh, also share some examples as you have done, Glenn, with actual projects where designers do have an impact and where technology plays a role. One example I want to give is a project that I've uh, had the pleasure of working on with uh, some very, very interesting people. One who was the founder of a company called Earth DNA, and they're based out of MIT. They work together with NASA and with the United Nations, their whole business model is to, to take the information that you have in the NASA satellite data of planet Earth and use that as an Earth operating manual, as they call it. They borrow the term from Buckminster Fuller's. You remember the whole of uh, the uh, spaceship Earth uh, model. And now with technology today, we have this all-encompassing ability to evaluate everything from as the acidification of the oceans, the air quality, fires and floods and around the world and monitor that and visualize it and understand it for patterns and ways in which we can address climate change in a holistic way. And our students 
had the opportunity to work with a themed project on design and the Anthropocene, this new era that we're in, where human human impact on, on climate has become such a, a key factor. Those are examples where, where students with design sensibilities can actually help visualize and bring different information using artificial intelligence, where you have this large scale data and information and be able to piece it together so that we can help analyze and and problem solve. So that's one example. And I'll just briefly mention another one where we're just starting a relationship with the University of California, Irvine, with their medical center and the head of medical research in breast cancer has decades of data on female patients taking their geosequenced DNA information from blood samples and are looking and evaluating at everything from age group, from different kinds of sources of illness, whether it's uh, dietary or DNA. And in collaboration with our students at LCAD, we're now teaming up with them to take that information, all of that data, and help look for ways to communicate and visualize the information for the scientists and for the biostatisticians to be able to help them in the problem solving and the big challenges that we face with female breast, you know, with breast cancer. So in this case, it's specific to females. Those, Those are just two examples where designers, scientists, engineers, technology experts all work t- together to problem solve. And I think that's that's where our future is. It's in that interdisciplinarity that I spoke about earlier. It's in that design sensibility that we, I think, are now starting to be recognized as being a lot more valuable to businesses than previously that help the bottom line as much as it helps for social uh, issues and problem solving. That's where I think, and I, th- I really appreciated you bringing this up, Glenn, because I think those are key examples where we really do have an impact as designers and artists and creatives. We call them just creatives. And now with technology, and if you have the right social purpose and principles uh, that you bring to the table, you can be very successful business-wise. We, you know, we're seeing in areas that we're teaching industries growing rapidly where designers are having a very positive influ- influence on the economy in this region, but they're doing it with a social purpose and you know, affecting positive change. And Steve, that was such inter- a good wrap up. I mean, it, it, sometimes it takes a while to to warm up to the key points, and it's not it's not uncommon to have a really good sort of close like that. And I think you nailed it. And I know, David, did you have any other closer questions, or is that a good place to leave it? No, that that was the 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 last one was like, what's the biggest challenge? And I hope Steve, we can have you out here in Connecticut and host you, and you can meet some more of the conscious capitalists here. And that interdisciplinary conversation that we just had with designers and business, that is, that's now in the future. And I thought that was a wrap up like Glenn said. So hopefully you can, yeah, we can get you out here and love you to introduce you to the Connecticut business community. It would be a pleasure. And likewise to have you both come over on the West Coast and come visit our campus and see it for yourself. Love to. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. 
This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding. RedRockBranding.com.